0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CxmH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vohr and I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined as always by my co-host Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly.
2: Hey, Robert.
1: On today's episode, we talk with Dr. Katherine Gordon about suicidal thoughts, including things like recent rates, how we might understand suicidal thoughts, and how things like context and environments factor in. But first, Holly, how are you this week?
2: I'm doing all right. I am joining our little intro recording from my office today, and it is cold and rainy and Mm -hmm. very November here in Texas right now, or at least in Waco. So, yeah, yeah, but I'm doing all right. Happy
1: November. Yeah.
2: Happy November. I do have one fun update to share.
1: Okay. Ooh, I know what this um, is, I bet.
2: You do know what this is. Last night, so we're recording this on the Wednesday right before the show release, and just last night, um, I got to hit send in sending off all of my comments and edits on the proofs document for my forthcoming book. And so it is now officially out of my hands for the very last time, and and it will be in others' hands soon. Hopefully, yeah. So it's good.
1: Yeah, is that a, a nice, like, uh, a relieving thing, or like a oh gosh, no, oh. now I can't fix anything, <laughs> or maybe a little of both.
2: A little of both, I think for sure. Like, I celebrated. Yeah. I know I texted you and Sarah Robinson last night, like right right after you know I hit send, and um, I definitely feel a deep sense of relief. And I will be very honest that. You know, last night before I went to bed, I like went back and checked my scent box and opened up the PDF one more time to like go back through, you know, before they opened it up in the morning. so. But it's yeah. good. It feels good.
1: Good. Anyway, yeah.
2: so there there is some good. What about you? How are y'all doing?
1: Good. Yeah. Enjoying the, uh, the November weather as well. I guess you didn't say you were enjoying it if it's like rainy, but I do like it a little cooler typically. But I'm doing pretty well. Uh, last night, as you were finishing your editing and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, listeners will know I live in Atlanta and the Atlanta Braves won the World Series last night. So that's pretty exciting. And Woo-hoo! I'm going to tie that back in and use that as the segue, but i'll I'll flip it into a question real quick. Have you ever been a part of a team that like won something? or I know you've attended multiple schools, lived in different cities? Like, had your city won something like any, any things like that?
2: Um. Yes. I mean, I just want to celebrate with y'all in Atlanta, though. I mean, Houston, the Astros mm-hmm. have not done terrible the last however many number of years. So that's been fun to watch. And I know Baylor doesn't do too bad when it comes to football. Yeah, um, they're doing pretty well this and year. So, yeah, they are. So, but I also will acknowledge that I am not the sports like i'm i'm not that sure sure. yeah like i defer to you on a lot of those sports um celebrations and team following and all that stuff but i i celebrate alongside and just you know but yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so did y'all so so you watched the rest of the world series last night and got to celebrate seeing them win
1: yeah, I stayed up and and watched it um, while working on some other stuff. Um, as as I stayed up for a handful of them, some some of them I didn't because obviously, at some point you're like, all right, why do we start these games yeah. at like eight or nine? Um, yeah, but whoever schedules them clearly doesn't have small kids. But yeah, so I stayed up and and it was a uh, it was fun and had like a you know a chat going with some friends, some local friends, stuff like that. So I wasn't really with anyone. I did wake Brooke up for the last little bit, but. It was fun. Yeah, it's cool to, that's to awesome. see. And I don't, I don't like super follow baseball. That's not one of like a, a sport that I like and super invested in. But you know, when it's your city and it's everyone's getting excited yes. as it goes and things, it's fun. So, which actually that's awesome goes right into maybe that maybe that segues into what I was going to use as the segue because that's amazing. The segue use, to the segue. <laughs> yeah, we're getting super. We're like the meta segway. <laughs> So there's actually there's some uh, some research uh with Thomas Joyner and stuff like that that shows there's a correlation between uh, group like uh, cities and things like that who uh win championships and are doing well and things like that with lowered suicide rates hmm. which the the hypothesis is that maybe the idea of like feeling that social connection, things like that, like you feeling like a part of something and connected to people and things Mm. like that, which like I was kind of speaking to last night, like I don't don't care that much about the Braves, but I care about Atlanta and a lot of my friends are really into it. And so just having Mm -hmm. all that like, oh, cool, I'm like a part of this thing, right? Um, And so I thought that was an interesting segue because we're going to talk with Dr. Gordon today about how things like social connection and and things like that maybe factor into uh, suicidal thoughts, desires things like that mm-hmm. in a couple of the the models that we discussed. So, I thought that was an interesting segue coming off of a, where I had kind of just experienced that that sensation of feeling socially connected to that type of thing.
2: I love that. I think that that's a that's a great connection. That's good. I I appreciate you raising, you know, that bit of research. And I do think it's, you know, relevant to today's conversation that we have with Dr. Gordon. And, you know, I certainly know that, you know, this is a topic that uh, that we care very deeply about and um, are very sensitive to, you know, throughout the conversation. Um, it's certainly one that we both have been um, personally touched by this uh, by this topic, and um, have known loved ones who have been touched by it. And so, you know, the opportunity to get to talk with Dr. Gordon in today's conversation, you know, in in trying to think and better understand more about um, suicidal thoughts and ideations, um, and behaviors, and such. Um, that you know, this is—it's a really important conversation, and so—and I—I love that it was Dr. Gordon that we got to have. You know, we know yeah. a lot of really, really good people uh, who are doing this work, but, um, but I especially really loved that we got to learn from her. So,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say one more thing, just in way of of uh, maybe advice or, or something like that. That if you are tuning in and you are currently navigating like a pretty recent suicide loss, I would maybe not not recommend that this be mm-hmm. suicide prevention, not be like your immediate next step, just because that tends to be a, I'm, I'm taking this information and looking backwards kind of in like a, did I do something wrong, regretful type of way? Um, and that that maybe not being super helpful um, in, in that. Um, and so I'll, I'll just throw that out there in terms of hopefully people are coming into this wanting to learn in terms of like, how, how do I understand people that are currently coming to me with this stuff or moving forwards, things like that, um, but not with a kind of backwards like, what? Where did I do something wrong? Type of type of mm-hmm. mindset, um, because that um, leads to plenty of of guilt and shame and and kind of a more complicated grief. So I'll just throw that out there just in case. And obviously, people can do whatever they want with that, but that would be my yeah. kind of general recommendation.
2: Yeah, I think that that's. I think the way that you explain that as well, as uh, well articulated. And I would just echo kind of what you said with a, a reminder for our listeners to be really, really gentle with you, especially with with this episode. And, you know, we got a whole bunch of other episodes. If this one just feels a little too tricky right now in this season, it's okay. You can go back and listen later or not, but we still, yeah. we really wanted to at least elevate some of the wisdom that Dr. Gordon has particularly around this topic. So um
1: Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll say is that this is uh, part one of a two-part conversation that we had with Katie. So uh, you'll notice that we don't do our normal kind of wrap up. That's because next episode, next Monday, uh, we'll be talking through uh, kind of some some tips and stuff from her her new suicidal thoughts workbook on navigating suicidal thoughts. And so in that one, we won't do we won't do the introduction stuff, but we will do the wrap up. So that's uh, why it's it's structured like that. Um, but with all of that being said, we will get out of the way and let you listen to our interview with Dr. Catherine Gordon.
2: All right. Enjoy y'all.
1: Today, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Catherine Hope Gordon. Katie is a, uh, I'll, and I'll, I'll call you Katie since we we know each other, just so folks at home don't get confused as to why I'm switching up the name there. Um, <laughs> is a clinical psychologist specializing in CBT. She has published more than 80 scientific articles and book chapters on suicidal behavior, disordered eating, and related topics. She currently co-hosts the Psychodrama podcast, Blogs for psychology today and shares mental health information at katherine h um, i'll also mention that she was a guest on episode 37 of cxmh you can go back and and listen to her on that episode if you want um, and she's also the author of the suicidal thoughts workbook cbt skills to reduce emotional pain increase hope and prevent suicide that came out this past july katie thank you so much for joining us how are you doing today
3: I'm good. Thank you so much, Robert and Holly, for having me on. I really like the work that you do. And I often recommend your podcast to patients. And also, Robert, it's just been fun getting to know you over the years through different things that you've written and done. So I'm I'm really happy and honored to be on today.
1: Yeah, well, we love having you, and I likewise. I was uh, thinking because you and Holly were kind of chatting beforehand, and I was thinking Katie's like one of my favorite people, and I know you've been on the show back, <laughs> I think before Holly joined us as co-host, and then I came on one of your previous shows, and so uh, and we've definitely interacted a bunch uh, on Twitter and things like that. So I know I read your bio there. Is there anything else that that our audience should know about you?
3: I think you captured all the main highlights. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: Well, I would, I would love to start by laying some groundwork, right? Because we're going to talk about understanding suicidal thoughts, uh, navigating them, things like that. But for a lot of people, they might hear the term suicidal and have kind of one idea what that means, right? So can you kind of talk us through some of the nuance there, explain the difference in terms like uh, maybe suicidal thoughts or ideation versus suicidal behaviors, things like that for those that maybe aren't regularly having conversations like this?
3: Absolutely. So suicidal thoughts usually mean that the person is having any kind of thought in their mind about ending their own life. And this can really range from passive suicidal thoughts or what are often called passive suicidal thoughts, where a person might say that they wouldn't mind if they didn't wake up or if they died in some way or if they got sick or hit by a car. So kind of the idea that they wouldn't mind if they died, but they're not doing something intentionally to make that happen mm. whereas active suicidal thoughts tend to be more thinking about plans and methods for hurting oneself and then there are also non-suicidal self-injury is a type of suicidal behavior where people intentionally inflict harm and cause some kind of tissue damage typically through cutting or burning but in those cases the intent is not to cause their death often it's to feel better, to feel less bad, sometimes to communicate something to other people. And then a suicide attempt is when someone with any level of kind of intent to die tries to cause bodily harm to themselves. And so that would be a suicide attempt. And so that's kind of the range of suicidal thoughts, attempts, and non-suicidal self-injury.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate the distinction. We actually, if you're listening and you're thinking, "Oh, interesting that maybe non-suicidal self-injury is kind of a separate thing," right? What we might um, more commonly here refer to as like self-harm, self-injury. Um, I will, I'll do like a throwback all the way back to episode twelve um, that we had um, an expert come on and talk about kind of some of the specifics of that. But I think that's a, a good distinction there.
3: And they do often happen together. And so I do, I I think it's worth mentioning that. But there are some people who say, probably as you expand on that episode, um, just who have no intention of of dying, but who use that as a way to try to manage their emotions.
2: Yeah, that's good. I appreciate that clarification. And Robert, I'm so glad that you asked that follow up and, and pointed back to that episode. Katie, well, so so first, thank you for kind of unpacking a little bit more about those different terms and kind of what they mean as we, you know, hear them to varying degrees, uh, you know, and especially these days, I feel like we, we've been hearing some of this language a little bit more. And to that, I know that there's been some debate as to, you know, what's been happening around the rates of things like suicidal thoughts, attempts, ideation, um, et cetera, over the past few years with sometimes we see some folks claiming that certain, that there's some certain trends that are um, happening, particularly around like COVID and especially over the last like year and a half or two. Can you talk a little bit about like what we've actually have been seeing, um, especially over the last, you know, year and a half, but but maybe just in general around like rates of suicidality, um, suicide deaths, etc. cetera, kind of. You know, what's been happening in terms of those rates and numbers?
3: It's it's such a great question. And I always kind of give a little bit of a caveat that suicide rates and suicide attempts are actually really hard to capture precisely. So there are always estimates and maybe even more so than other types of mental health things we might look at because mm. it's not always clear if someone's died by suicide versus overdosed on drugs or what their intention might be. And also with suicide attempts, often they go unreported. So it's all of that is kind of the disclaimer I usually give before talking a bit about trends. But in general, the trend for suicide deaths, very sadly, in the United States from the 2000s to 2018 was climbing. The suicide rates was climbing year after year. And then in 2019 and 2020, we actually saw a bit of a drop In suicide rates, I think this—at least our best estimates of them—and this was kind of surprising in the context of COVID, because CDC surveys and other types of surveys found that suicidal thoughts appeared to go up, even while deaths appeared to go down. And there's been a lot of different speculation about why that might be, but it's—it's—it just goes to show it's kind of hard to predict what. Will happen with rates and suicidal thoughts.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's
3: really
2: interesting. Yeah, huh.
1: that's and I, I maybe that's worth kind of highlighting uh, uh, just for folks that are listening. Whenever you hear kind of a a clean cut narrative about, you know, this thing causing suicide or this thing or that, right? Like, if it's ever kind of like a clean cut, like, oh, this is a one for one, you know, thing, maybe be a little more skeptical of that because we don't, we don't know. And in fact, in a second here, we're going to talk about uh, various models proposed for understanding suicidality. So there's not even like a, we know this exact thing, right? So uh, maybe that's just a good kind of uh, point there for people to be a little bit skeptical of anyone who's kind of pushing a, a clean cut like i know exactly what's happening here kind of kind of narrative.
2: Yeah, that that makes sense and i also i i'm glad you mentioned that robert um you know this the statistician in me is like yes, you know Correlation does not mean causality, and so there are other factors and things that are you know potentially happening. But I also would say, Katie, I'm really glad that you elevated um, the ways in which these numbers could perhaps le- perhaps be underrepresentative of of what's actually happening. Like in terms of you know folks perhaps not uh, reporting, or, or you know, yeah, just either folks underreporting or or uncertainty around you know some of the the things that have been happening around. Um, you know, various ideation or attempts, so I just appreciated the context around that that number those numbers that you offered.
3: I appreciate you both saying that because I always feel when people ask me about rates that I'm giving a an a kind of a dissatisfying answer because the truth is that <laughs> there's a lot of speculation and acknowledging the complexities I think are really important, that people can try to predict things, but we don't know. What we do know is that far too many people struggled with suicidal thoughts, attempted suicide, and far too many people were lost by suicide, even if we don't know those precise numbers. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. the conversation about this, whatever the precise numbers might be.
1: Yeah. No, as as someone who uh, gets asked some of those same questions, I definitely I, I understand and and relate to what you said there about oh, I always give like what feels like a very non-answer answer, right? But I also uh, I I love kind of the the sticking the landing there on regardless of the exacts, right? We could debate this and that in numbers or whatever, but like the reality is too many people, we're losing too many people, too many people are feeling this, you know, like those types of things because that's that's really what matters, right? Percentage points, who cares? What matters are the the individual people, right? So, so that might be a, a good transition into there are some different models proposed for understanding suicidality. Notably, I talked about Dr. Thomas Joyner, who I know you you worked with a little bit. Uh, the inner his interpersonal theory of suicidality. Uh, on a bonus episode, I talked about that back in uh, October of 2017. You based this workbook on a related but different theory, right, called the Three-Step Theory of Suicide. Could you tell us a little bit about that, why you chose that theory, and, and kind of for someone who says, I've, n- I've never heard that before in my life, what that looks like?
3: Absolutely. And I should say that almost all of my work, I am very grateful to Thomas Joyner and his theory. I was lucky that I was in his lab and in graduate school as he was developing that theory. And when Why people die by suicide. His excellent book talking about that theory came Mm -hmm. out. So I find that the three step theory is compatible with it. And I chose it because it also focuses on suicidal thoughts a bit more specifically. Because the book, my workbook, focuses on suicidal thoughts. And the three step, the interpersonal theory of suicide talks about how people desire suicide in terms of feeling like they alone and feeling like they're a burden on others and then talks about people die by suicide, having um, a capability for suicide in, in addition to the desire for suicide. So the three-step theory talks is a bit different in that it talks about first the step one and the suicidal desire and asks, is a person in pain and hopeless? And so the hopelessness part you see across both of the theories The pain part is more broad within the three-step theory. It certainly, a lot of the time, is going to be related to feeling alone, disconnected from others. That is a robust finding in the suicide research literature. And just from being in practice as a therapist and knowing people who've struggled, feeling alone is a big part of that and feeling like a burden. But this theory suggests that there could also be other sources of pain and takes kind of a a broader view and that the person is hopeless that that pain will ever change. And so the idea is that someone starts thinking about or desiring suicide when they're in deep, intense pain and feel like things are not going to get better. And then in step two, it talks about who will have kind of a modest level of suicidal desire versus a stronger level of suicidal desire. And that kind of goes back to when we were first talking about the definitions and range of suicidal thoughts that some people may feel like I wouldn't mind if I died, whereas some people are more like I I want to die and here's the plan for it. And so this theory proposes that this determining factor for that is, is the person's pain greater than their connections to life? And what that means is that their pain could be so high that even their connections to life through loved ones or through meaning or projects or whatever it is that they're connected to, the pain is so great that they, that, it, that it's stronger than those connections. And that's when they have stronger suicidal desire On the other side of it, the suggestion there is, if those connections to life are strong and stronger than the pain, that even if someone's in great pain, their suicidal desire may still be at a modest level, which is useful in terms of thinking about risk of attempting suicide, but clearly very painful as well. And then step three, this is building on the interpersonal theory, is a person capable of tempting suicide? And this is based on the idea that Joyner and his colleagues introduced that while many people desire suicide, one reason that many people do not go on to attempt suicide is that we have a built-in survival instinct that makes us fear death and and want to protect ourselves. And so the idea with the three-step theory is that people who are in pain and hopeless, their pain is greater than their connections to life, and they're capable of attempting suicide, meaning that their fear of pain and death is decreased. Um, those are the people most at risk for attempting suicide.
1: Yeah. And that, mm-hmm. that last bit there, kind of the, the uh, capable of attempting suicide, right? Um, I know uh, Dr. Jorner, I think, speaks about it as kind of this acquired capability, but that might, uh, in my head, that makes sense of some of the maybe populations that we consider like kind of more at risk. Uh, veterans who have experienced, more, like have, have more experience kind of overcoming the, the fear response because they've had to in dangerous situations or um, like intravenous drug users, right? Like they maybe have Uh, overcome the idea of like hurting themselves in small way or even maybe why non-suicidal self injury kind of presents as a a risk factor for later suicide attempts that that kind of makes some sense of that to me in terms of have I uh, previously overcome that kind of um, innate like no don't don't hurt yourself kind of thing before Um, so in case that I don't know does that make like is that how you understand that as well like does that make sense or am I kind of like just the, hearing it weirdly.
3: No, no, I. That's exactly right. the The capability for suicide idea has kind of evolved since it was first introduced. But you're right. That is definitely part of it. The idea that certain people, by virtue of their life experiences, so for example, if someone's experienced physical trauma or other types of things like that, then they might have lowered fear about pain and death or if they've been in accidents or if they've had previous suicide attempts. And what also has been found through uh, research that Joyner and his colleagues have done is that there may be a genetic component to some of that type mm-hmm. of lower fear of death. and. And uh, pain tolerance and, and those aspects of it. And then another part that's been highlighted, I think, both by Joyner and Klonsky's three-step theory, which I don't think I mentioned that I should. Klonsky in May 2015, they're the that was the first paper that introduced the three-step theory, looking at practical capability, meaning if someone has access to a gun or drugs to overdose on or other methods for suicide, they're going to be more capable of dying by suicide merely by having access to it and the knowledge about how to use those things. And that's been some of the discussion around why, for example, physicians might be at higher risk. Do they have more knowledge? Have they seen more people die? Do they also have more knowledge about what it takes for someone to die by suicide? So the important part about identifying that is that what Research also shows is that when you can reduce access to those methods, even when someone has the knowledge in moments of crisis, that it can prevent suicide for many people. For example, if they securely store their gun at those times, the bullets are separate from the gun, they're in a locked safe, or they don't have access to enough medications to overdose at that time, that that can be life-saving because that reduces the capability for attempting suicide in that moment. Yeah, that
2: makes sense. And that's, it is helpful having some of those practical thoughts around or practical steps around like how, if you know somebody who is potentially at higher risk or may respond with yes to each of those questions that y'all were just talking about a bit before, like, you know, just how to, how to engage in um, preventing and suicide prevention, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So you also talk um, a little bit in your book about the different contexts and environments um, and just surrounding things basically that can be playing a role in helping us to understand suicidal thoughts or behaviors or just various factors that are contributing uh, you know, to, to these. Can you explain a little bit more about that, about those contexts and environments and surrounding factors?
3: Absolutely. I think that one of the lenses that has helped me to think about these contextualizing suicide risk factors, and I I should say, along with suicide statistics, one of the difficulties in understanding causes and factors that contribute to suicide is that there are so many diverse pathways that can bring people to that place. And so, what the research does show is that people who tend to not have basic needs met, meaning that they can, they're they struggling with accessing health care, they're having medical issues, they're having financial struggles, they don't have secure food and housing, that all of those things increase the risk for suicide. And we know that probably mostly because it, it's there's a lot of media coverage when celebrities die by suicide, that it's not... True that if you have all of those needs met, that completely protects you, but those can be protective for a lot of people. The research does suggest that people who are struggling with those issues may feel more like a burden on their family, might feel more hopeless, and so that's why I really do think when we think about suicide prevention, it's important to think about how can our society nurture people, how can we reduce and get rid of discrimination? How can we make it so that people can be their happiest and healthiest? And so I think that those factors are really important in addition to some of the individual factors like genetics and individual life stressors that can increase risk for suicide. Yeah, that's, that's
2: helpful. I was just thinking, you know, so many of these, these contacts environments and their ways that they play a role makes me think so much of social work. Cause I mean, obviously I'm a little biased for social work, but, um, but it just the, the lens that the surrounding structures and systems have on this. I really appreciate that you paid attention to that and included that um, within this as well. So thank you yeah. for that.
3: You're welcome. And I think social work really, is been good at, at prioritizing these systems and contexts surrounding suicide risk. And I think psychology is focusing more and more on that, but social work, it's kind of embedded within, from my understanding of it, within mm-hmm. how you look at, at people's mental health is it, it, it exists within those structures. And so I think that's really important and for the field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank mm-hmm. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so for the
1: thank second you. half of the conversation, I know we're going to transition into uh, some like how to navigate suicidal thoughts, either for the individual or for maybe someone kind of supporting someone. Um, but to kind of wrap up this first chunk, right, I wanted to see, is there is there anything else, if I'm someone who's trying to understand, make sense of either my own suicidal thoughts or someone that I love or someone I know, right, they, they've told me they're having suicidal thoughts and I'm like, I don't know how, I don't, I have, how do I, how do I make sense of this? Right. Is there anything else that you would say to either of those, either the individual or someone kind of in a supportive role to, to help kind of make sense of, of suicidal thoughts or or anything like that?
3: I think that kind of spoke to this, but just to really highlight the pain that exists when people are struggling with suicidal thoughts and that, that often is paired with a shame, a sense of that the person should be able to just overcome them or there's something wrong with them for feeling those suicidal thoughts. And the truth is that suicidal thoughts are fairly common. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of people are struggling with pain in them. Um, And that it's it's something that often comes up with this idea of of wanting to escape. And so if your loved one is struggling, I think it's important, as, as painful as it can be, to kind of be open and listen to what are those sources of pain and what's underlying those thoughts. And that can be exactly. really hard to do because it, it's hard and anxiety provoking to hear people you care about talk about wanting to die or even having thoughts about death. But if you can kind of sit with them and listen to where they're coming from, I think that that connection and understanding can really mean a lot to people in a time when they're feeling yeah. alone.